welcome to Raw the Podcast with Emma and Amy, where we talk real and raw with mamas who have had to fight and be fierce, who have been thrown curveballs and faced adversity. We discuss everything from premature birth and NICU life to special needs and infant loss. Nothing is off topic. We hope that by opening up and being vulnerable, we can break down the walls and start to remove some of the shame and stigma associated with these traumatic experiences while helping other mamas feel less alone. I'm Emma, a rural living mum to two Premie and medically complex girls, Hazel Earthside and our warrior Willow up in the stars. And I'm Amy, special needs and medical mama to Premie boys James and Jack and a fierce advocate for the Premie and special needs community. We don't share your average mama stories and this isn't your average podcast. Raw is unrefined and breaks through the bullshit of navigating guilt, grief and trauma. I mean, let's be honest, we've been through more shit than some could ever imagine. So at this point, we don't really have a filter. But with this being said, please note, we do talk about sensitive topics in our episodes, which we know can be distressing. We give this warning simply to empower you, our audience, with the knowledge you need to make healthy decisions about how and if you should consume this podcast content. Please take care of yourselves and don't hesitate to ask for help if you need it. And lastly, let us assure you that it's not all bad and sad. Above all, we hope to shine a light on the life-changing perspective and appreciation that only these experiences can give you. We share the overwhelming joys and triumphs that our little miracles, both here and in heaven, bring to our lives. And we discuss the inspiration and hope we have gained from this community. While our experiences are individually unique, we are forever a part of something truly special. A community of fierce mama bears and their cubs navigating the storm. And together we'll roar. Welcome back everyone to Raw the podcast. We're back for episode number three and by now you would have all heard my story that I shared with you last week. Hopefully um, you learned something new and had a few little chuckles at the cervix talk and the <laughs> mucus plug talk. We sure had a laugh in that episode. Um, we're actually really excited to introduce our very first guest with you all today, Danny, the lovely Danny. She is one of our very good friends. Um, both of, well, all of us here have had two premature babies. Um, so I think that's why we um, all get along. I guess we've got a very good shared experience that we can um, bullshit through and <laughs> um, we, could, we could talk for days, the three of us. So welcome, Danny. Hey, Dan. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm very excited to have you here. So we're just talking that you've had to go up to a um, up to your studio to get get five minutes on your yeah. phone today. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Make sure Molly stays asleep so she doesn't interrupt us. I feel like that wouldn't be a bad interruption because she is. I could eat her. She's so cute. <laughs> <laughs> she would actually. She's getting to the point now where she anytime I'm on the phone or talking, she sits in my lap and talks over me. So she would literally sit here and. You wouldn't hear anything yeah. I'd say because she would just yeah. babble over She'd the top of the me. She'd steal the show. Yeah, absolutely. And plus pull the laptop down and the cords out and all the things. She's grown so much. She has. Yeah. She's gorgeous, but a little terror. <laughs> all right. Do we want to get straight into it? I reckon. So um, Lila is your first Premie daughter, um, Danny. Why don't you tell us a little bit about her um, journey? So she was born at 27 weeks, weighing roughly a kilo. Yeah, yep, she was, so she was obviously our first daughter and got pregnant, no problems, had a beautiful pregnancy, super easy, wasn't really sick, everything was just easy, all my scans were fine, everything went along swimmingly and then I had planned to go to Darwin for a week's holiday because I thought, well, I want to have, you know, around 27 weeks is a good time because I'm not heavily pregnant, 
give me enough time to have a week's R&R and then come home and finish off the pregnancy. So I had my last day of work on the Monday and I woke up that morning and I said to my husband, it was so weird, I felt like I had period pain last night. And he's like, oh, okay, see you bye. <laughs> off to work he went because we just thought no big deal. As they do. I was sitting there and I thought, God, this pain is, you know, it's quite intense. And I realised it was starting to come consistently and I thought that's weird. And the only thing I thought of at the time was it, this must be Braxton Hicks because I had obviously not had a pregnancy before and had had no other complications leading up to this. So I was like, oh, okay. And I started timing them as well because I thought it just seems to be quite repetitive. But I had a hot shower and that felt good and got out and the pain was sort of on and off. And I was so determined to get through my day of work because I was like, no matter what's happening, I'm going to Darwin in the morning. I need this holiday. So it got to lunchtime and I was like, I think I better go to the hospital and just get checked to make sure that I'm safe to fly. Because I was still thinking, gee, Braxton Hicks is pretty full on. Like how full on's labour going to be if this is this how is full on Braxton Hicks are? Like, I'm kidding myself if I think I'm going to have a water birth and candles, you know, all nice and laid back. <laughs> and um, so I drove from Victor Harbour to Flinders and by then the pain was so intense I couldn't breathe every time which was a contraction, but every time a contraction happened, I couldn't breathe. And I was like, I just need to be checked out to make sure I'm safe to fly tomorrow. And they're like, are you sure you're right? And I'm like, yeah, I think so. And then, you know, each time I'm talking my breath, I'd lose my breath. And they're like, oh, we'll just put you on a bed. And they put, um, you know, the band around my stomach to monitor the baby and everything. And I was laying in this bed and gripping the edge of the bed every contraction, still determined that I'm getting on this plane in the, at 8.30 in the morning. <laughs> But anyway, the doctor stuck, she obviously, I was obviously making a lot more noise than I realised and the doctor stuck her head around and she looked a little bit stressed and she started checking me out and she was like, oh, we'll just have a look at your cervix and she sat on the edge of the bed and she said, oh, so you're one centimetre dilated, you're in labour, this baby's on its way and I was like, oh, no, I'm getting on a plane in the morning, I just wanted to make sure I'm all right to fly and she, so I still, had a, such I still was like in denial that, yeah, yeah, I was like, whatever. And she said, um, I'll be back. And I, she went out of the curtain and I could hear all this kerfuffle, you know, people racing around or whatever. And I came back with the scanner and she scanned the baby and um, she said, oh, okay, the baby, she was transverse live, so she was right up under my ribs laying sideways. And she said, so you're not going to be able to deliver her. We're going to have to do a classical cesarean to get her out because she's little and she's up so high, you're not, you know, there's no other way to do it. Um, I was like, okay, and she said, we'll start, you know, all the meds to try and slow down the labour, but, you know, she's looking like she's there's no stopping there, which is yep. that is her personality to a T. Yeah. She's, yeah, she's got FOMO. She wanted out. She wanted to get out into the big wide world. <laughs> so, yeah, went down and um, had they, they did the classical Caesar and pulled her out. Gosh. So it was all quite overwhelming because obviously first baby had no preparation that this was even – didn't even know this was a thing. I had thought about, yeah. I think, every other scenario in pregnancy but did not even consider premature birth. Um, mm. We were lucky that she was she was a really healthy 27-weeker, mm. so she was really good weight for her gestation. She was perfectly formed and healthy. She was just early. Yeah. Um, so, into you know, thrust into NICU, didn't even know that place existed, so didn't have the tour that some families get to have beforehand or didn't know anything we were just in there and just went wow like you have the excitement of the fact that you've got a baby but also all the trauma of the surgery and, and everything shock. and I was yep. picked out of hospital yeah absolute shock yeah all three of us have sort of had like a very unexpected 
you know, none of us were aware what was happening in our no. pregnancies. We were all, we yeah. were all sort of in denial mm. and had that, had that um, shock, you know, it's all of our first pregnancies as well. So you have absolutely no idea. And when you said Danny about not knowing about premature birth or even NICU, all three of us have that same experience of being thrust into that world that you have no idea about and very quickly and suddenly. And I remember, yeah, like when I lost my yeah. mucus plug, I had absolutely no idea. And I remember we were 30 weeks and Scott and I looked at each other. We're like, do babies even survive at this gestation? Like we had no, no, yeah. no knowledge mm. at all. Yeah. Mm. And you have such a perfect plan, especially when it's your first child. You're like you said, Danny, I'm going to have a natural birth, and oh, I'm yeah. going to go on a I'm going to go on a baby moon before like the baby arrives, and all this sort of stuff. Yeah. And then for it just to change <laughs> so quickly, so out of your control. Yeah, no one warns you about no. it, do they? It's no. not something that when you fall pregnant, people talk to you about, or it's not something you go and research because mm-hmm. you don't think it's no. going to happen to you. No, yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, yeah. So then her journey was, you know. Before I had Malia, I thought that was a really stressful journey and tough and it was, you know, the usual roller coaster of a few steps forward and a few steps back and, you know, the, the usual things with lungs and gut stuff and feeding intolerance, the retinopathy of prematurity with her eyes. But she kind of teetered on the edge of some things possibly going wrong, but never actually nothing really major ever went wrong for her. So we had a few stressful and hairy moments, but really, like I said, until I knew better once I had Malia, her journey was actually really quite straightforward. Um, And we were there for 81 days. She got home a week before her due date and we didn't look back. She was just healthy, happy, smashing her milestones, like just amazing. And she still is, you know, she's six and a half now and she is an amazing child in her, like in her health and, but also her personality and her resilience and her empathy. It's so funny how you say that um, you compare like Malia and Lila's journeys like because Hazel was obviously our first and she was 34 weeks and at the time and you were probably the same with Lila that was the worst thing that possibly could have ever happened to you when having a child and that was your perspective but until you've had a child after that that you don't want to say is worse but they are worse and you don't want to take away the journey that your first child have but had but when you compare the two they're just like A and B, aren't they? They're so completely different. And Malia's journey yeah. obviously gave you a whole new perspective of how it can be so much worse than what, what you had the first time around. Yes, I think that's what happens in the NICU too is everyone sits around and it's hard not to compare yeah. your own journey that you're going through at the yeah. time to what's happening around you as well and thinking, oh, they've, they're, it's so traumatic what's happening for them. I feel so bad for them. I should feel grateful yeah. for mine. And then there's others. I remember at one stage, in the middle of Marley's journey with all the stuff that had happened with her and a family next to us, that baby was having an x-ray and the mother was really Mm. completely melting down over that. And I sat there feeling almost angry at the time going, you have no idea. You have no idea. But then I thought you, you can't feel that because that's her hard. Yeah. Yeah. I sort of, it really taught me to eat a bit of humble pie because I'm like, it's, it doesn't matter what, your journey looks like or how hard it is it's your hard yeah or how many days they're in for or yeah I agree it's shit if you if you end up in NICU for anything it's shit Shit. yeah no one should ever have to experience that yeah I agree yeah all right moving on to Malia um so she was like you said she had a much bumpier ride um from the get-go so she was born at 24 weeks weighing a tiny 420 grams which is just blows me away um tiny yeah 
tiny, tiny little girl. Um, yeah. So, yeah, tell us about her pregnancy. I know it was very bumpy. Yeah, so we, I mean, we struggled with infertility for two years, even trying to get pregnant with her. So we were told after Lila, we were told to wait two years before trying because I'd had the classical Caesar. So my uterus needed to heal properly and whatever. So we did that and we were thinking in that two years, we're thinking no way are we ever doing that again. Like no way will we ever have any more kids. That's That journey is enough for us. But after two years, the memory, the time and the memories do fade a little bit and, it, you know, everything with her, was so blissfully easy and great that we were like, well, you know, it would be nice for her to have a sibling to grow up with and share our farm with and our life with or whatever. So, yeah, for two a good two years we were like almost at the end of our tether. We knew we didn't want to do IVF. That was just our choice. We didn't want to go down that path. Um, so in the last four months we were like, can we truly say we've done absolutely everything to make this pregnancy happen? And we had done a whole lot of preconception care and a whole lot of stuff and testing or whatever. And we are like, the only thing left to do is to really clean up our diet and lifestyle to the nitty gritty, like all the real little things like managing stress and cleaning up our diet. Like, so just a whole clean, low inflammatory diet, no alcohol, and just do that for a solid four months and see if that makes a difference. And literally at the end of that four months, bang, we got pregnant. So it was Mm. so exciting. And we told Lila straight, we were going to wait because I was only about four, four or five weeks and we were, or four and a half weeks. And we were going to wait and we thought, no, we can't contain our excitement. So we sat her down and told her and she was over the moon and she said, oh, please, can I have a sister? Oh. And we were like, we don't get to choose. I'll try my best. but <laughs> That's right. We'll put the order in, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> but we had about a, a week of just pure blissful joy, happiness. I wasn't sick. Everything felt great. Um, and then at about five and a half, six weeks, I started bleeding and I didn't have any bleeding in my first pregnancy. So that was new for me too. And I was like, Oh God, I must be having a miscarriage. And it was, it was stressful, but I was like, Oh, it'll be okay. I'll, I happened to be in Brisbane at the time too. So I'm like, I'll get back to Adelaide and just see what happens. And it settled down for maybe a week and then on and off for the rest of my pregnancy, I was hemorrhaging. So I would literally wake up in the middle of the night and it would be like, I'd wet, wet myself. And there'd be blood all through the sheets and my clothes. And so we'd go to hospital and they were like, we, you know, they before 12 weeks, they basically didn't even want to see me. They were like, just go home, if we, yeah. you know. If, yeah. 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 They're like, we can't do anything anyway. So if you're having a miscarriage, Miscarry at home. basically go yeah. home and have your miscarriage. Yeah. That's pretty yeah. much, that's pretty much what they said to me. And I was just like, the amount of blood that's coming out of me does, that's not normal. Like it's, yeah. that's, yeah. I feel worried that I can't possibly lose that much yeah. blood, but yeah. they were like, no, it's fine. So that was, you know, that was really stressful. And then, so it was all kind of about me and the bleeding for me. The baby at that point, as far as we knew, was was fine and growing fine. She was a little bit small, well. but yep. they were like, that's, you know, we'll just monitor that. Um, and then, you know, I got classified as placenta previa grade four. So the worst possible level you can have with that. So it was just, she had everything against her from the very start with her journey. And I literally envisaged her in my uterus, like clinging on like a little possum in there going, I'm not leaving. I'm not leaving. Like I'm, you know, my body was doing everything (laughs) to almost expel her. And she was like, I'm not going anywhere, which again, that's very much her personality. She's here to stay. Um, So by just after 20 weeks, I was admitted to hospital on full bed rest. And they said, you're going to be here until your baby's born. That's you know that's the you can't go home again so I was in hospital for quite some time before she was even born and at about 22 weeks one of the doctors came in and he sat down and he was so lovely 
and he spoke to us about the fact that this baby wasn't doing very well. She was really small. She had no fluid around her. She's likely going to pass away in utero. And that was a shock because until then we thought it was all about me and my bleeding. So we just cried and cried and cried. And he, you know, he was so lovely in his delivery, but it just, yeah, we sat there just going, this couldn't be any worse. Just when every time we thought we got past the next hurdle, we're like, this just is another blow. So we, they asked us what we wanted to do at 23 weeks. Did we want to take her out and try or not? And we said, we know she's not big enough. We know the intervention is going to be horrible. So at that point we said, we want to just keep going with the pregnancy and hope that she stays in a bit longer and gets a bit bigger. And obviously if she passes away, then she's not meant to be. And that was, I felt so much guilt saying that when I was carrying her and it was just, it's just not even decisions you should have to make, but we kind of decided yeah. we'd let the universe kind of help us decide rather than make that call. So, and then at, at 24 plus two is I went into labor again, exactly what happened with Lila. And I knew because I'd been through it before when the contraction started, I was like, mm. I'm in labor. And I was like, this is happening. There's no choice now. There's no one's made the call. It's just my body is, she's coming out. And I was, you know, monitoring the contractions and they were every couple of minutes and they came in, they said, we've got to get this baby out. Her heart was starting to drop and they said, this is it. I had another classical mm-hmm. Caesar and they took her out and they started doing the intervention and she was responding. So they went with that. And then by the time, you know, they mm-hmm. took me in to see her a few hours later and we just got to touch her little, and her hand was literally smaller than my fingernail. She was, and she looked like a fetus. She didn't actually look like a baby at that point. She was so tiny and so underdeveloped and I remember later a lot of the nurses saying to me yes she even though they've had you know 23 weekers in there they said she was probably the most underdeveloped fetal looking baby rather than just a really tiny baby baby. So even from the start Malia obviously had a lot against her like her gestation as well as her weight yeah um, and just how fragile she wasn't but even so I remember you know the first 48 hours if NICU no matter what are quite um critical for most babies with James with his platelet disorder I remember you know in that first even 24 hours I was told that he could have had a large brain bleed and may not have survived like it's um you just don't know what's coming um you can never really pick or tell what your journey is going to look like especially yeah from the from the very beginning yeah there's so much that happens um especially within the first few hours and a lot of the time (laughs) sorry guys hazel is on my lap (laughs) a packet of hot chips (laughs) laughing every time i say hers or willow's name so that's fun mum life anyways um (laughs) yep she doesn't take a day nap anymore so makes life difficult um but yeah like before we'd even seen both the girls especially willow they'd done so they'd done so many (laughs) interventions they inserted lines they like administered caffeine and also and obviously put her breathing tube in which is all such crucial stuff that if it's not done within those first few hours like it's life or death so um, we're just so yeah. lucky that they're so onto it, really. Yeah, and that's something that people don't understand, like the fragility of the situation um, yeah. from the get-go. Like, you know, we don't share that on social media, do we? Like when we eventually share <laughs> a birth announcement or that our baby's arrived, it's a photo after all of that is done. And I remember Scott went into the NICU after James was born and was watching all of that Um 
And he, he couldn't even stay in the room. Like he had yeah. to walk out because he just couldn't watch what they were doing. And, yeah, yeah no one else sees that or knows what actually goes no. on in those first crucial crucial hours. No. So, yeah. yeah, and it's funny. When I was actually um, preparing for another podcast interview with um, Milkshakes for Marley, um, she'd asked me and she'd said, had Willow ever received any blood products? And I was like, no, like, I don't think so. She was like, oh, like, I think she would have. And I went and looked at her, um, they do like a stellar beads program at the hospital. So they record every day what they've had. And she had a blood transfusion on, on like day two. And I like, obviously knew about it, but there's just so much that happens that you don't don't yeah. realize because her platelets were so low so um yeah. it's obviously they just those nurses and doctors they deal with stuff like this all the time so it's just a process for them yeah. but for us it's all so um all brand new and um things that we we don't consider that needs to happen to keep a little baby alive yeah, like we were saying, Marley obviously was even, you know, with her weight and her gestation was even extra fragile yeah. on top of all of that. So, yeah. Yeah, so then they basically said if she makes it through the first week, she is a miracle, and she did. She We got through that first week and, you know, her lungs were not doing well, but she was, she was what I call stable. You know, obviously she was still pretty critical, but she was stable as far mm-hmm. as they were managing her. And then day nine um, we got a phone call 5.30 in the morning and um, – Scott said, oh, she's, her bowel's perforated, she's critical, you need to get here now. Um, so we raced in and he said, what do you want to do? We can either just not intervene and she will pass away um, or we can do surgery and hope that we can save her but we might not even be able to find um, a surgeon and an anaesthetist that will work on such a tiny baby. And so we sort of talked all that through and we said, yeah, we want to, we want to do the surgery if we can. So we managed to get a surgeon in from Women's and Children's and a beautiful anaesthetist. They couldn't even move her into a theatre because she was so unstable. Um, so it was all very stressful. Mm-hmm. And then we left and she had the surgery and she survived and she was, she was, she did really well. Like she, they had to remove five centimetres of her small bowel. They gave her stomas for her bowel to recover and they said she's stable and she's survived and that's all great. And then she, around week six, she got septicemia from her central line. So she was seemingly perfectly well during the day. And I got home at 5.30 to see Lila in the evening. And I got a phone call an hour later and they said, you need to get here. Molly has crashed. She's critical. Things are not looking good. So we raced back in again. And she was swollen and grey and just looked not, it looked like they had swapped her out for a different baby from what I left an hour before. Um, so she was really sick with that. And so another big challenge of getting her through that. She had a surgery to rejoin her bowel and that was all working well. And, you know, we had another surgery for her eyes. So she'd had all these, you know, surgeries and all these sort of hurdles, everything that could have gone wrong for her kind of went wrong for her in NICU. Like she, we literally had all the issues with all the things to the nth degree, but we got to 130 days and we made it home. She was fully breastfed. That must have just been so exciting after all that you'd been through to finally be yeah. leaving that hospital that day as a family with Marley in your arms and loading her into the car, excited for the journey of what was to come. Yeah. But obviously little did you know 
the journey that was to follow after you got discharged, which is something that I don't think people um, realise sometimes is yeah. that the day you leave NICU isn't just the end of the journey for everyone. Sometimes it is. For us with Hazel it was. We left and that was yeah. it. We got on with our lives, but it was certainly a very different story for Willow and was a very different story for you, Amy, as well, I think. Yeah, that's right, especially with Jack. Like, James, same thing as you guys. So, James, you know, we didn't have many hurdles um, once he came home from hospital and we did. You think that that's the end goal and that's the final hurdle and, yeah. you know, when you're in the yeah. NICU, that is the end goal. You just want to get home and life beyond yes. that is yeah. meant to be normal. Um like yeah. I think the worst part's over but yeah with Jack it was the opposite like that was just the beginning of our journey and yeah and that was the same for you unfortunately Danny. Yeah we had four weeks of just getting into sync of how to deal with her at home and and then she um it was a Thursday and she just was crying and crying and crying I thought well it's why are you so unsettled today and there was nothing of like no rashes no temperature no nothing really obvious and then it was actually a look she gave me. I was holding her and trying to settle her and she looked at me almost with fear in her face and I was like, I rang Roger and I said, something's wrong, we've got to get her to hospital. I don't know what it is. And we got to Flinders and they did an X-ray of her tummy and they were like, yeah, she's got an obstruction, she's going to need surgery. Um, so they rushed her to Women's and Children's in an ambulance and got to Women's and Children's and they just wanted to observe her and she deteriorated so badly overnight that by early hours of the morning they said we, we need to get her in for surgery. So they took her in and Roger and I, we just felt like everything was going to be fine and she was in good hands and, you know, this was just another little hurdle. And when we got back up to PICU and our surgeon eventually came out, she goes, oh, I need to take you into this little room. And she said... I'm really sorry. She said Malia has survived but she's got a very tough road ahead of her and things are not looking so great. She'd lost 80% of her small bowel and she said so now she's going to have, she'll live with short bowel syndrome and at the moment she's stable but, you know, it's going to be a very long road and there could be quite a few bumps and I just, I, I couldn't even hear the words and you know this was a thing that was she's forever changed it's not something she's going to recover from it's pretty much the worst scenario you could have had yeah yeah I, every day I was like I don't feel like this has actually happened I feel like I'm going to wake up and they're going to go oh no no it's all fine and it's actually healed and and she said to us then she said you're going to be here for at least a minimum three months at least and it ends up being nearly seven um and I we stood outside and I cried and I said I can't do this again we've just done 130 days I can't do another three months I can't do it and and then you pick yourself up and you do because what other choice do you have and people used to say to me all the time I don't know how you do it you're so amazing I'm like I'm not amazing you just yeah no other get choice yeah and, you know for us women's and children's was now over an hour away from home so driving over two hours every day for 180 days to see her that was exhausting in itself as well she got so many respiratory infections from being in hospital she got septicemia again um then there was all the COVID stuff too so I Roger couldn't be there and then I could be there on my own and I wasn't even allowed to leave her room so I was locked in her room with her and I was getting trays of food from the hospital that they would drop off at the door and I was like this is actually probably what prison. it feels like to be in a prison <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah 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 you'd gone through so much at that stage too so it was like one thing after another and then suddenly you're in this room on your own and you've got so much time to sit there and think about everything you've gone through but it's just 
oh, yeah, how your how was your mental health yeah. in that like in that time? Well, it was hard. Like I had a lot of grief around losing the whole breastfeeding thing too. You know, like I was like, I can't believe I can't breastfeed anymore. It's not fair. And you know, I went through that whole. I was angry, and I'm like, it's not fair, and this is just so shit, and it's another thing. And then in the end, I went, well, you know what? You, so I pulled the pump out again. I was ex- full time expressing for her and putting it in the freezer because I'm like, I'm like, at least eventually, if she can have anything orally, she can have breast milk. So I was pumping for four months, not even knowing she was ever going to be able to use that milk. And I thought, well, I can donate it. I just want yeah. to have the option for her if she can. And um, and that was probably something that you felt like you could do for her. Exactly. You feel like you have a purpose and sitting there. But it was really, really hard work, like hard work. And I hate. I thought I was done with that pump forever because we were home and breastfeeding and it was all great. And I thought I'd never yeah. need it again. But, yeah, sure enough. And I'm still pumping now. We're pumping till her second birthday and I am done. No more after that. So um, I feel really proud of making it. You're incredible. I cannot believe that you're still going. Sure, birthday's on the 27th, so not long to go now. But, um, yeah. but yeah, mental health-wise, like I struggled. And I mean, there were even, I mean, there were times when I would sit there and go, we, you know, look at the reality of the situation and go, we worked for two years to have this baby and we did it for the sake of Lila. And now I'm stuck in a hospital with a baby that's going to have lifelong complications and hardships that takes me away from my daughter and is going to make Lila miss out on things and the hardship for her in that year was you know I was as a mother I was very mindful of not being able to be there for her while I'm you know being torn between two children is is just horrible as you as what probably you felt as well Emma when you were down with with Willow and having Hazel at home and trying to do the juggle it's just it's not fair. Yeah. And especially with especially with COVID as well, it's not like I could say to Hazel, like, you can come and see her or, like, it was just that complete disconnect of, like, mum's in hospital with Willow and Hazel was in Kimber. So it's like they can't even, they don't even have that in between of being able to come visit either. So it's so hard to explain to them. Yeah, really, really hard. So you've been home for nearly a year now with Malia um, with a few short admissions in between. Her second birthday is later this month, as you said, which is incredible. Um, She's still quite high care at home. Um, What does a typical day look like for you at home now out of hospital? Yeah, so I'm her, obviously I'm her mother, but I am her full-time carer as well because she she needs full-time care. Like she's not, she, she can't be in a childcare um, so I don't, I'm not working anymore. I can't, I've had to shut down my business. But um, we basically, she's at, in the morning, she's still connected to her PM through her central line. So she's got her IV stand with a little bag on it, which now she spends all morning pulling it towards her cot and trying to tip it over. And it's just, it's a nightmare. <laughs> so she's a menace. So we get her up in the morning. Um, often she's, you know, because of her bowel issues now, she doesn't absorb a lot. So when she poos, she poos like, you know, when people talk about punamis, oh, I'm like, cool. you have not seen a punami until you've yeah. been to our house. Like, it's not a, it's not a nappy <laughs> change. It's a nappy change, an outfit change, a bed linen change. You know, so we do my washing machines going full time pretty much. So, um, but we get her up, and she, you know, we, um, so disconnect her from her, um, like her PN. Obviously, her line stays in her chest, and then she's disconnected for the day. And then, and you know, now we're doing. I, I'm pretty much out most days with her doing therapy. So, you know, whether it's physio or OT or speech or whatever. So we're or gastro appointments, specialist appointments at the hospital. We're, you know, it is a full time job running around with all her medical stuff, really. Um, 
so that keeps me busy most days. And then by the evening she gets, you know, takes two of us again, we connect her up to her pen and she goes to bed. Um, and even even for her during the day when she's not connected, her risk of infection is so high. So she can't, you know, we can't have her. She's not like a normal child that can go and play in the dirt and the sand pit or go for a swim or anything. She can't do any of those things. So she's very restricted on what she can and can't do at, at the age that she's Amalia at. Amalia can, um, um, she can become really unwell really quickly. So um, with her central yeah. line, even a fever you need to go to hospital for, um, how do you sort of manage the stress of that while not letting it take over your life? Like you guys are such fun, free-spirited, positive people um, and you, you can see that you don't, I mean, you have it has to rule your life in a way, but you don't let it take over your life or um, you're, not, you're not negative about it. So how do you give Malia such a beautiful childhood and um, Lila such a beautiful childhood despite all of that worry and anxiety about her fragility? Yeah, I think I think because we had to spend so much time in that first year in constant state of stress and worry. Since she's been home, we are just we are like constantly grateful for every healthy second we get with her, and I'm constantly reminded. You know, I look, even when she's driving me nuts, like you know, yesterday she pulled all the all the shopping bags out the cupboard and she climbed and she's trying to disconnect the dishwashing <laughs> pipe from the main pipe. I was like, "What are you a plumber or something?" Like she's just. <laughs> I could so imagine her doing that as well. <laughs> oh my god! Yeah, she is. She's just such a menace. But I, you know, I look at her and I go, "I just can't. I can't even be angry with you because you're. We're just so lucky to have you here every day. I'm so grateful that she's with us. And I, you know, despite the hardships that she does." create in our family because of her medical complexities I, we're just still I would still take all of that and more to have her with us I, I wouldn't trade never ever have I gone I would rather not have any of this hardship and and you know not not have had her I just and in that in saying that um this is where it, this is I'm going to get emotional but you've seen um Emma go through what she did with Willow um losing Willow yeah. um at the same time that Marley has been really sick and like having that knowledge of how it can go wrong, um, how, you know, how sick Malia was and how many times you were told that you could have lost her um, and then seeing Emma lose Willow, um, like the emotions that brings up and how yeah. grateful you feel that Malia has survived. Like oh, it's, um, yeah, it's, it definitely puts, it brings you back to earth like whenever you're having a moment where it's not that there aren't days that I have moments where life is hard but it honestly, I've, I don't think I've ever known anyone directly having lost a baby and having had the journey that you had Emma with Willow and then eventually not having her with you anymore. No matter how hard my days got, I just, you know, that could have been our, like that could have very easily been our story too. And thank, yeah. I'm so thankful that it's not for me. Um, and I, I do remember, yeah. I remember when we were in Rosewood together and seeing you get to take mm-hmm. Willow back home and I used to feel almost jealous of you. And I'm like, I can't believe you get yeah. to go, you know, it's so unfair, we're still here and yeah. you get to go home and you're so lucky. And, you know, I, I sit there some yeah. days and still have guilt around the fact that I felt like that for you. But obviously at the time, who yeah. was to know that that was what was going to happen? But that's why it's so important, I think, to sit in your own journey and not compare to other people's journeys or their feelings or or whatever yeah. it's great to have because yeah, it's amazing to have other families that have that you can share your experiences with because no one else gets the experience like other premier families like no one 
no one gets it like they do. But um, it's still yeah. so important not yeah. to have that comparison artist because it's just every everybody's journey yeah. is just so different. Yeah, and I think and I think like what we've spoken about before is um, like with Malia and Willow, like they were pol- they're polar opposites in the journeys that they've had, and um, if you look at them and you write their stories down, you would expect the outcome definitely to be the opposite way around which is not what you want to say about any child and I say this all the time that I would never ever wish anything bad on anyone else's child but you never think it's going to be you and you can have such a good journey and it still end worse than other people have so I think yeah but I think it's also really important that even when you are having bad days like let yourself have a bad day like it can't always be a oh but like Willow's died and Marley is still here because you're still allowed to have bad days and feel the way you're feeling but at the same time Emma you are allowed to you're allowed to say why me as well like it's um yeah yeah. you know you must have that feeling now almost of um you know why why was it Willow and um you know yeah that's not saying you know why does everyone anyone else's child get to survive but why did this have to happen to me and that's all right for you to say that as well and to feel almost to be angry and um I'm assuming that some days you do feel angry and jealous of you know I shared my story last week and listening back to that episode I felt like almost guilty that I was you know I've got I'm so happy yeah. that our story is has such a beautiful happy ending but then I think of you and yeah how how, how that must be quite painful for you to listen to mm. yeah yeah and I mean yeah. and it is and it does suck and um that's not something that I will lie about like it can be simple things at the moment all these kids are going back to school or starting kindy and taking photos and it's like well like we'll never have that which is heartbreaking but you don't want other people to feel guilty about sharing their their triumphs and their joys yeah. as well. So it's it's a it's a really um, it's a fine line. Um, and like I said to you last night, Amy, it's not that you'd ever wish anything bad on anyone else's kids, but it's like I literally said to you, it's like why the fuck does any child have to die? Like it's not why yeah. did this yeah. child live and this child didn't. It's like why why is it that they can't all live? Like tell me yeah. why. Yeah. Is, is where I really struggle but yeah. that's just something we're going to have to navigate and um, yeah. I don't think it's ever going to be right and um, but yeah we just all yeah. have different journeys I suppose. Yeah and Danny um, going back to you so there's you're sort of um, you're quite passionate about supporting mothers through healing um, you've said in the past it's a huge gap that needs filling um, you know, mothers who have been through premature birth and this like medical co- complexity of parenting. Is that the way I say it? Medically yeah. complex parenting <laughs> like you have with Malia. Um, you're such a, I, I call you a spiritual person. You're very in touch with your <laughs> spiritual side and your emotional side. Um, but you, like, I think both of us are very passionate about um how much we can do better in the space of supporting mothers, not just through premature birth and NICU, but beyond, especially because when you go home, there is so little support. Um, You're just Mm. thrust on your own. And 
you know, the babies go back for multiple checkups. They're followed through to two years of age, um, but the mother is completely forgotten. Um, so what do you think we can be doing better in this space to at least begin to make a difference and support mothers through that? Yeah, well, that's, yeah, it's certainly a passion of mine. And I feel, like I said, if you, you can't pour from an empty cup, so mothers need to have, you know, they need to be able to do that self-care and have this time and space to be able to do that. And I know there's a lot of guilt for a lot of mothers, myself included, around doing things for yourself that, you know, even if it's something super simple like managing to get in the bath on your own without kids banging on the door or just something lighting a candle or doing something really really basic for that that fills your own cup so that you then are able to be the best mother for your children and for your family just doing simple things like that and a lot of that sort of stuff comes naturally to me because I come from an industry where that's you know a very important part of what I help other other particularly women other women with so I have access to a lot of tools like that already and so it's sort of a lot of it came naturally to me but I forget that not everybody even understands the concept of self-care or what sort of things they can do for self-care um, and reaching out for support as well like that was something else I learned is I'm not very good at taking help from people like I'm I feel like I'm a pretty capable person I can carry the load and do all the things but this journey with Malia has really taught me that it's okay to ask for help and it's okay to accept help and the you know I've got a lot of a lot of support from friends and family but ironically it was actually people that were more acquaintances that really did big things for me during my time in hospital that yeah. made a huge difference like for example just you know a, a lady that um I mean, I call her a friend, but she's she's another naturopath, so in sort of my circle, work circle, and she organised a cleaner to come to our house a couple of times. So rather than people saying things like, what can yeah. I do to help, what do you need, she just took it upon herself to organise that for us and now we have a full-time cleaner because I was like, I'd never had a cleaner before and I was just like, you know Why what? Why the hell haven't I done this before? <laughs> uh, yeah, I was just like, where has this been? But I think it's so silly, like, like you said, we have we have this list of things that we wish we could, like if, when people say, what can we do? It's like, well, I could list off so many things. Why are we so embarrassed or ashamed to say, can you come and do this for me? Or because especially yeah. like myself as a friend, when I ask someone, what can I do for them? And they tell me nothing. I'm like, what the fuck? Like surely there's something that I can do for you, but then I go yeah. and do the same thing. It's so stupid. Like why, why are we so backwards in accepting help? Yeah, it's so important yeah. that we actually um, just do the things, like Danny said. Like, um, yeah. yeah, I was the same yeah. in NICU. I just had people, people just dropping meals at the door, and I that was yeah. the most helpful thing that anyone could have done. Like, they were individual yeah. meals that I could just pop in the freezer, and I didn't have to ask for them. And that actually gave me relief. I'm like, oh, I didn't even have yeah. to ask for that. Um, it was the biggest help mm. that they could have done. So I think yeah. if you can find something to do for someone else without having to be told um I think that's because we are I, I don't think we're yeah yeah I don't think anyone's good at it and I don't think we're getting better at it unfortunately and for you Danny like you like you said you're a full-time carer for Malia so even trying I'm I'm impressed that you find time to have a bath and <laughs> light a kid I mean like you yeah. said they're simple things but <laughs> yeah it's definitely it's definitely um nice to just have that or like even Literally, or even being up here in my in my clinic space, away from my responsibilities down there, even this is time out for me. Being able to yeah, do yeah. something that's important for myself. Yeah. 
Right. Well, I think that we are done. Thanks, Danny, for sharing your story. Um, no worries. Yeah, you've, God, you've um, you're a warrior, mum, aren't you? You, are, you inspire. Yeah. You inspire us yeah. so much. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Yeah, and we'll have to <laughs> catch up soon in person and um, yeah, have a bonfire at your farm. Yeah, sounds good to me. All right, so Emma and I just wanted to jump in here and I guess have a chat about how sharing our own stories and hearing other stories um, over the past few weeks has brought up a lot of emotions, um, a lot of triggers, I guess. And it's we were both saying the other day how it's just made us feel blah in a way, like quite flat. Um, and I guess we just want to assure others and our audience that we're actually not immune, you know, to to what we've been through and what we talk about. And um it is going to bring up a lot of emotions and a lot of trauma and these are things for us that we went through quite a while ago now especially my story with James um but you know even now no matter how many times I've relived that story and the trauma it's always going to affect me um yeah definitely and I think um there's like different things that affect you that you think like might not affect you like I remember saying to you um listening to the story of Malia being born and um like being able to look at her and all that sort of beautiful stuff and um just the like the the images that that brought to me was yeah it just brought a lot of um memories back um things that I wasn't able to do as well and I think I just don't want people to think like the way we speak about it here we're quite like you know that's why we're called raw (laughs) raw the podcast because we do we we talk quite openly and honestly and um that's what we're aiming to do we don't want people to have to hide away or feel ashamed but at the same time it doesn't mean that this isn't affecting us and it won't affect you and I think it's just important to put a little note in here you know to look after yourselves we've said it a lot if this is triggering or um you know causing anxiety or anything to just pull back yeah and I think it's also like good for us like we just had to check in with each other and like I remember like after we recorded the episode I just sort of went for a walk and I messaged you and I said like I don't know about you but like I'm just feeling really blah thinking it was just me but um it wasn't we were both feeling very much so the same and um not to be embarrassed that things affect us in different ways and yeah it's it's always going to be hard when you've been through something traumatic and you're hearing other people's traumatic stories um you're always going to compare them to your own um even if they're completely different yeah and like yeah that whole point about no matter how long ago it was like even now I if I'm going to visit the NICU for any reason I just have to press the button in those lifts and my heart like beats out of my chest and the noises of the lifts the lift opening and walking towards those NICU doors like uh, yeah the anxiety and the triggers and such little things isn't it yeah you know it's 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 normal I think to even years down the track yeah. have certain things that set you off absolutely yeah. I know at the moment I've been yeah. struggling with I don't know if you guys get these sort of ads we're on um Imparja TV which is Queensland TV so we get a lot of ads aimed at um the Aboriginal community and trying to get them vaccinated and um promoting the COVID vaccination and there's a specific add-on at the moment which shows um an elderly Aboriginal man in hospital on life support um with 
like a, a tablet in front of him and he's FaceTiming his family and he like takes his last breaths on the advert and then he passes away on the TV, like highly inappropriate. <laughs> and I just bore my eyes out every time I watch it and I just think of Willow passing away every single time and it's a completely different story like he's 80 she was one like you still like you just put yourself into that scenario every time and you involve yourself into that story and it it can get really exhausting yeah and that's the thing like I guess for someone who hasn't been through what you've been through, it might not have, you, you know, they might not have the same response. Exactly. So obviously to even get that on yeah. the TV, they haven't thought about people like you or people who no. have recently experienced yeah. grief. Yeah. And that's why, you know, yeah. we're so, yeah. I guess, vulnerable because we have had that trauma. Yeah. Um, and then something like that is enough to, yeah, something like that is enough to just set you off for like sometimes a week. Like that can just completely change your mood and that can um really set you back so it's... well that's like that bluey episode the early baby episode did you see that i remember when bluey released the no. early baby episode um i bloody howled oh, no. watching it with the boys in the oh, mornings <laughs> yeah but like it was beautiful be it's one. a beautiful episode <laughs> no it's it is it's like i recommend yeah. premier families go watch and it and it but, would be yeah. yeah but it's just yeah. um it brought like, up so yeah. much emotions and um, yeah 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 it's, yeah just the littlest things like yeah absolutely and like I'm finding that a little bit as a nurse now working with a lot of tube fed babies and babies yeah, with um, absolutely. swallowing disorders and stuff like it's things again it's things you don't expect that can smack you straight in the face and you know I'm in my Definitely, job professionally as yeah. a nurse but I find myself hugging the mum crying and I'm like oh gosh pull yourself yeah, together well, Avi yeah. but yeah it's um you just don't yeah. know when it's gonna gonna hit you so yeah, I guess it's just, no, I think that was important for us yeah. to, yeah, make sure our audience, if you do um, feel a little bit blur and yuck that we're with you, we're feeling yeah. it too. And um, just to reach out and talk to someone, check in with your NICU friends um, and yeah, even us if you need to. So we're always here. Yeah. 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 Wow, well, there we go. Episode three of Raw, the podcast finished. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening. And a huge thank you to the beautiful Danny for coming along and sharing your story with us. We hope that um, this helps so many people. And, yeah, next week we're really excited, Amy. We've got something big coming and tell yeah. us more about that. Yeah, so next week we're going to have another guest Kate Fisher from Milkshakes for Marley, which is another podcast. Um, Emma and myself have actually both been interviewed for her podcast. So now we're coming together and we're going to speak a little bit about Kate's story, but mostly the three of us have had um, the same experience of medically complex parenting. So we're going to delve quite deeply into that, what it involves, um, the day-to-day stuff as well as the stuff that people don't really talk about. A lot of you have actually asked for this topic to be covered, so we're excited to bring you that. And, um, yeah, mostly so you guys know that you're not alone in the in that shitstorm. So, yeah, very exciting. We'll see you all next week for that. Bye, guys. See you guys. Bye. Thank you for listening, everyone.